I've got some really exciting news for y'all. We have been nominated for a Webby for Best Technology Podcast. A great big thank you for making this Webby a possibility. If you want to vote for the Traceroute Podcast for the People's Voice Award on the Webbies, go to bit.ly slash traceroutewebby. That's bit.ly slash traceroutewebby. Or click the link that is included in the show notes. You're listening to Traceroute, a podcast about the inner workings of our digital world. I'm Grace Aressi. And I'm Fen Aldrich. And I'm John Taylor. And today, I'd like to take you all on a little trip on the Wayback Machine. So we're going back in time to September 12th, 1962, to President John F. Kennedy's speech at Rice University. This is the historic one, the big kahuna, the one that everyone recognizes from the following line. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I don't know about you, but I just find that incredibly inspirational. I mean, there's a reason why this speech became so iconic. It's the rallying cry for the space age. It's the kumbaya moment that got us to the moon. Or was it? You see, the fact is, we had already decided to go to the moon. More than a year before this speech, President Kennedy had announced to a joint session of Congress that he planned on putting a man on the moon before the decade was out. But to get there, the federal government would have to spend almost $190 billion in adjusted U.S. dollars for the Apollo program alone. And no one gets that kind of money without a little song and dance. And finally, the space effort itself, while still in its infancy, has already created a great number of new companies and tens of thousands of new jobs. Space and related industries are generating new demands in investment and skilled personnel. And this city and this state and this region will share greatly in this growth. Did you hear it? Did you hear what happened there? Only three minutes after Kennedy makes his awe-inspiring pledge to put a man on the moon, he starts talking about the practical reasons why we should spend billions of dollars on what is literally a pie-in-the-sky project. And I believe he knew this going into the speech. Kennedy was a savvy politician. He looked at the polls. He listened to his cabinet. He knew that this moonshot was an expensive and potentially unpopular proposition. But Kennedy was also young and eloquent, charismatic, and popular. Why not just stand in front of the cameras and use a little of that old charm to sell this idea to the American public? And boom, faster than you can say Apollo, John F. Kennedy became the world's first tech influencer. Or at least, that's my theory. According to a PC Mag article from 2022, the man who is more universally acknowledged as being the original tech influencer is a gentleman named Brian Dewey. In 1987, Brian was employed by Mutual of New York Financial Services with the fascinating title of PC Brand Specifier. 
1988, he appeared in an advertisement in PC Magazine stating, quote, It's my job to select brands of personal computer products for 1,500 end users here at Mutual of New York Financial Services. No matter how tough or how confusing it gets, my boss expects me to be right every time. That's why I have to read PC Magazine, end quote. And no one ever looked back from there. Well, influencer content performs 300% better than branded content. And on TikTok, it's 3,000% better engagement. That's Peter Kennedy, founder at Tagger Media, which is an influencer marketing SaaS technology platform. So if I'm a brand and I'm going to create content for that customer journey, I'm going to hire influencers to do it because it's going to perform better. So if you think about awareness, consideration, purchase, um, retention, advocacy, all of that content's being used throughout that process because it's just performing better. How much better? According to Peter, better to the tune of $250 billion a year. Without a doubt, the advent of the internet and the proliferation of social media have now made influencers part of our daily lives as consumers. It's a movement that has affected not only the people within it, but the development of technology itself. The question is, how much influence do these influencers have? And really, who's influencing who? When you think of tech influencers, what's sort of the first thing that pops into your head? It's an interesting question. I think of <laughs> I think of developers a lot of time or I think a lot of marketing. Like I think of people who are situated within the construct of their company in a really flexible way. Like their work is multidimensional or multifaceted and not super straightforward. I think I initially gravitate towards like sort of the modern concept of influencer, right? In in tech. And it's the thought there is very modern social media, outward facing and very direct consumer focused. And so if I think tech influencer, I'm thinking more like Linus Tech Tips or, or any of these like tech focused consumer channels that are very like YouTube heavy and are diving into the latest thing and and whatever it is that's that's out there. Probably a lot more mobile tech and things like that. Yeah, I guess that's sort of the first place I would think of if I thought tech influencer. And this kind of consumer-facing, heavy social presence tech influencer paradigm is echoed by Peter Kennedy at Tagger. The Tagger platform helps companies identify influencers, then create, manage, and report on influencer campaigns. So tech influencers are really interesting because they are leaders within a specific category, really technology. And they're super good with like product reviews and recommendations. That's kind of why tech companies hire them. They also are, are the leaders in trends. So if we think about when you look at tech influencers, their main platform is going to be YouTube for most cases. And, and the reason being is that YouTube has become a search engine. So as a new product comes out, People are going to go to YouTube. They're going to search up that product to see what are the reviews? What are people talking about? What are the features? And you see a lot of unboxing. And these unboxing things, everyone's like, unboxing, that's so weird. Well, no, people actually want to see what the product looks like. And they actually want to see you know, how it performs and, and what are the benefits and, and, and cons to it. So that's kind of the main platform that we're seeing the most traction with um, tech influencers. 
In fact, according to data gathered from 1,000 tech influencers by Upfluence, YouTube has the highest number of tech influencers on its platform, beating out Instagram by almost 13%. But the biggest difference is the average number of followers on each platform. Tech influencers average over a half million followers on YouTube, but just over 70,000 on Instagram. And the reason for this, as Peter explains, is that tech influencers are more likely to be content creators. You know, a great influencer, one, is a content creator. They know how to make really good content, but they know how to make content based off of what's important today. Because if you look at influencer content five years ago, it's very polished, it's beautiful, you know, everyone looks flawless. And if you look at content today, it's very real. People look like normal people and, you know, they're talking about things that are affecting them. And so, you know, they're moving with the trends. It's very real, which is which is interesting to see. They also listen to their audience, but they don't really listen to their audience, right? Which means that, listen, they're really good at making content and that's why they have their huge audiences. But not always huge, huge audiences. You see, there's another factor at work here. Long-form visual platforms like YouTube allow content creators to reach very specific audiences, like developers who want to switch from C++ to Python, or engineers who need to build an open-source threat intelligence platform with sticks. YouTube also allows creators like Chris Sean to reach developer communities with a very personal approach. If you look you up on uh, on your website, or if you just Google you, there's content creator, internet personality, uh, tech influencer. Um, these are all all words to describe you. How do you see yourself in that? Someone just trying to share his life, his ups and downs in tech, before and after, right? Uh, I want people to see the real. The, the, what tech is like, not just what you see on Instagram, not just what you see on day in the life of a software engineer, Twitter, right? But the real ins and outs, right? There, there are often, it can be more downs and ups, but the pay is great. It sounds like we need a, a, a little backstory. So so why don't you give us the, the Chris Sean origin story, how where you were and how you got to where you are? Yeah, so interesting story. Uh, I think an interesting fact is um, I shouldn't be alive today. I was born in six months, not nine. Um, I tried to come out in five months. My mom had to go to the hospital, fight me for one month to keep me inside. Mm. Um, and then two months later, I almost died again because my intestines were tied. And so I shouldn't be alive today, right? And because I was born so early, I had a, uh, my, it took time for my brain to actually develop. Long, much longer than a normal guy, <laughs> right? So I was in special ed. I took the yellow bus. I was very slow. And um, I became homeless because I didn't know what I'd do with my life for the longest time. I was 26 and I saw a YouTube video from Bill Gates, from, you know, uh, Chris Bosch on how you don't need a degree and you don't need to be, especially one of those normal nerds you see in school to become an engineer. And so I figured, all right, maybe I can do this. I learned how to code and got my first job in tech in just three months, fortunately, right? And I happened to make a video on that out of nowhere with my Note 7 Samsung Plus that almost exploded. And ever since then, I've been documenting my journey from being homeless to being where I am today in tech. Because of the uniqueness of your story, that, that, that's what compels you to share it with other people. Why the both willingness and, I'm going to say, need 
to share your story with other people and your content? It's definitely neat. It's definitely, it helps me mentally. It's kind of like my diary, but I share with the entire world. When I was learning how to code, so I got my first job in three months, but what I don't often share with people is I tried to learn code the first time I gave up. And I tried looking on YouTube to see if there's anyone that can give me advice as someone who's self-taught. There was no one sharing their journey. There's no one vlogging. And I did vlog at the first, not anymore. And so when I got my first job, I, I, I told myself, you know what? If there is no one out there that could have helped me, I'll be that person for other people. Yeah, I'm a junior developer at the time. I barely know JavaScript and I still got the job. I want to be that person that helps them. And I never did it for the money, but turns out seven years later, it, just, it works out, right? But I never did it for the money. It was really just to help people. And the reason I did this as well is because of someone named Gary Vee. Mm-hmm. I watched him seven or eight years ago. And he said, if you see no one doing what you want, you be the first person to do it. And so fortunately, I was one of the very first people to do what I did on YouTube. Chris Sean's story and the way he interacts with his community reimagines the definition of the word influencer. Yes, Chris is a YouTuber and a content creator and he makes money as an influencer. Good money, by the way. So November, December combined, I'm making around $40,000 minimum for maybe 80 hours of work. Yeah, that's about $500 an hour or almost a million dollars a year if you can keep it up. But again, that's not the point. The point is how Chris and others like him redefine the term influencer. Chris is not that outward-facing, consumer-focused salesperson that Fenn had described earlier. Chris's influence is personal. He doesn't sell courses. He doesn't sell anything. He wants to help you change your life. So it begs the question, just how much influence does an influencer have? Okay, Grace, you're up. How exactly do you describe your job? I'm a human being whose favorite color is cobalt blue. No, you know, I think this is so hard for me (laughs) to answer because I have a job title that is not necessarily reflective of the work I do, right? I am a senior, like, solution marketing manager. What does that even mean? But internally, the work I do, I handle, like, technical narrative storytelling, which is also maybe a little vague to some people. But, you know, the point of my job is to keep our potential customers, current customers, and the market in mind, and not just like the financial market, but, you know, our community in mind as we create content that either expresses what we're working on or explains how to engage with our products and our platform. So maybe that does make me an influencer in a bit because I can become or do just about anything that feels, you know, ethically responsible and also does not like shame my parents, my parents being, you know, the company. Let's drill down a little bit. As a technical storyteller, (laughs) who are you telling your story to? Officially, I am talking to people who are interested in buying our products and services or who have already purchased. But I think of it as being a little bit bigger than that. I think I'm also talking to a greater community of people who might utilize our product without necessarily being the ones who are making purchasing decisions. I think that the function of my job and the way I approach it is 
I want to tell informative and engaging stories that help you understand more about how you could use our product, how we fit into your ecosystem of tools, and how we can help you meet your business and organizational like goals or initiatives or whatever you might have in an efficient, effective, and hopefully enjoyable way. All right, Fen, over to you. Fen, what is your official title? What what do you do? <laughs> oh, I, I love this. I love that, that Grace and I basically do the same thing, but have approached it from different market segments and uh, consequently different titles. So my official title is developer advocate, uh, which is probably the more recognizable form of like modern tech influencer corporate backed title. Uh, then what was what was the full title that you have, Grace? <laughs> Senior Solutions Marketing Manager. Solutions Marketing Manager is uh, well. It's 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 funny because it just encompasses is a little bit more. I think broadly of the like the the marketing machine that is like trying to market tech to largely tech savvy people, right? So there's a a corner of developer relations that's largely like how do we market to this segment that's extremely marketing averse because they've been fed the pitches they get. So many emails per day of people trying to get them to buy a product. How do you actually talk to these people and say, hey, here's a real problem that we recognize is happening in the industry and here's how we solve it. Like generally when I'm out there and like talking to folks, I want to convince people like here is the problem space you might not even recognize you have or here is the problem space that we do really well in. And, like, try and discuss this. Like, here's how things are. Here's what's difficult about today. Like, here's what kind of sucks. And, like, maybe there's a better way we can do this. And, in fact, if you believe there's a better way we can do this and you're on board with the way I'm talking about, like, maybe you should check out our product because it rolls in the same philosophy of, like, problem solving. And that's kind of how I approach this digital storytelling to the same point as Grace. Like, Arguably and ultimately the goal is like, I do want sales to happen because that's like how money ends up in my bank account and then how I like pay my rent and my bills. But the minute that becomes my goal for my job, it kind of undermines the entire thing. Uh, and I think Grace has the same same approach. If I'm not approaching these conversations genuinely to actually help people out and like without the ulterior motive of driving towards a sale, that gets sniffed real quickly. <laughs> so the roles that I've always seen developer advocate or technical evangelist or developer relations or some role of this type has to be that genuine like pre-sales approach of like, can we actually help each other? Uh, is there a way I can teach you something? Is there something we can learn? And maybe it's like, I just taught you a skill or I just taught you that the entire product segment exists and it's you need to dive in and understand more before you're even thinking about purchasing it or using it. But we had this moment and we both walk away better for it, right? Like from having this conversation. So let's talk about how you deal with the community, keeping all these things in mind that we talked about earlier, your reputation and wanting to provide actual solutions. And how do you then make that approach to the community? There's a fair share of what I do that is going back to marketing and saying, hey, here is what I'm seeing. And like, this is really landing with people and what's taking off and like what we should be talking about. Or yeah, hey, this AI discussion seems to be going this way. Maybe we should be talking about this and, and weighing in on it. Or 
you know, DevOps is losing its buzzwordiness. What else can we talk about, right? Got it. And how much influence do you have in that when you are going back to the company and saying, this is what I'm hearing from the community? I was at Elastic during the time that they changed up their licensing to shift more. It was a very bizarre moment. So they had an open source, open core project that was all licensed under classic open source Apache 2 licensing. And they had paid product that was licensed under various tiers of payment from free to gold or platinum or whatever else based on your business needs. And uh, the first part of the decision was to merge the two repositories into one big code base. This was poorly marketed <laughs> and needed much more time with community talking about why it was happening because people just saw this as a, you're making it difficult to contribute in creating a copyright trap. So there was like some copyright concerns about people stealing how we did stuff. But the main thing was it was really hard to operate on a code base that was in two different repositories <laughs> and keep it in sync, right? It was hard to operate on this this is connected code base between open source free and, and paid uh, without actually having them all in the same place. And there was like a big developer like headache trying to do that. And while merging this code base took a ton of effort, it alleviated all the efforts of operating in different code bases and having the release team try to sync all of those up and do all this testing in both public and private repositories. Uh, but that wasn't talked about. What ended up getting talked about was, oh, you're putting free and non-free code together. You're making it difficult for us to know what's what. Um, and all of this happened without really diving in and talking to Elastic because we didn't communicate out uh, to the community what was happening clearly. And so um, the... DevRel team, as, as Elastic was thinking about then making also their licensing change from Apache 2 to now their, I think, Elastic open license or whatever it is, um, that was more about like restricting online usage or restricting like Amazon from just taking Elasticsearch and operating it online and charge money. Um, when it came time to do that, our DevRel team and our, our community team was very much like, hey, we need to communicate about this stuff. We're going to have similar problems. Uh, this is kind of an unpopular decision. People are really not happy about us switching from this licensing. Uh, we're going to run into similar problems. And as we move forward anyway, ultimately, that's what created this kind of fracture in the Elasticsearch community and created the fork that is now OpenSearch uh, that runs on Amazon and has its whole development community of itself behind OpenSearch that is separate from Elasticsearch now. And yeah, I mean, that's the other side of like where we don't always have influence, but uh <laughs> you know, it goes from there. I think the kind of influence you're talking about, John, where you're impacting dollars, like really impacting dollars, I'm talking hundreds of thousands, maybe a couple million. I think that sometimes that level of influence that you're talking about is when you are able to say, hey, we're testing this product functionality. People don't like it. People aren't using it that way. Yeah, and I've had yeah. past jobs where we've got to, we got to run alphas and betas. But running the alpha is really the gag. But like we were able to show people a product offering, get their opinion. And as, you know, as influencers, take that feedback back to product engineering and say, yo, I don't know what y'all thought this was supposed to do, but nobody likes it. And it's not doing what you want it to do. You will derail products plans, but you can absolutely help the company in the way in which they engage with their own offering by having those relationships and they being honest enough 
to be candid. And I have had jobs in the past where I've been able to do that or be a part of teams who did that, where we're like, people don't want this functionality. And we weren't always listened to. The truth of the matter is, just because you've collected the experiences, the stories, you have the exposure, you've built the community, it doesn't mean that, you know, the product roadmap of the company that you are influencing for is going to be receptive to that friction you're providing. But more and more, tech companies are becoming open to that kind of friction and that kind of feedback coming from a person who has influence within the community they're serving. This is something Peter Kennedy has seen firsthand. And then we start to see, you know, these technology companies bringing in these influencers into what we call the boardroom, right? We're thinking about new product launches. Let's bring them in the boardroom. Let's get their advice on what products we should be launching, what features are important. And the reason why that's happening is because they're sending out content all the time. They're getting messages, comments from all these different people around the world. They know what's going to work, what's not going to work. And and frankly, every brand category are bringing these people into product development, product strategy, uh, even marketing strategies. So you're seeing that across the board that influencers are are having an influence on the product that's being developed. Correct. Yes. I mean, the the reason why, like, we think about influencer marketing in in our platform is like social listening, right? It's like what's happening within the space, but we only focus on influencers. Why? Because I don't really care what I have to say out there, right? Because I don't really have a huge audience and it doesn't really matter what I have to say. But influencers are people who move culture. I mean, I don't know if you remember Corn Kid, but, you know, it's a video about, you know, corn. It moved the corn commodity market. I mean, that is the, that is the power of these people, you know? And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing what levers they can pull within our society, but also what levers they can pull within these companies to help drive the product roadmap. Well, I'm not exactly sure young Tariq actually moved the corn commodities market, but he was in fact made South Dakota's official corn ambassador. So that's pretty cool. There's a saying that goes something like, in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. And maybe influencers are the manifestation of that prophecy. Word of mouth, right? There's no greater marketing than word of mouth. And maybe John F. Kennedy knew on that fateful day in 1962 that a mouth that happens to have millions of listeners is one of the most powerful and influential tools at our disposal. Influential enough to put a gadget in your pocket or a man on the moon. Trace Route is a podcast from Equinix and Stories Bureau. This episode was hosted by Finn Aldrich and Amy Toby and was produced by John Taylor with help from Sadie Scott. It was edited by Joshua Ramsey with mixing and sound design by Brett Vanderlaan and additional mixing by Jeremy Tuttle. Our fact checker is Anna Alvarado. Our staff includes Tim Ballant, Susie Falk, Lisa Harris, Elisa Manjadas, Stephen Staver, Alexandra Uresta, and Rebecca Woodward. Our theme song was composed by Ty Gibbons. You can check us out on X at Equinix Metal and on YouTube at Equinix Developers. Visit traceroutepodcast.com for even more stories about the human layer of the stack. And of course, we're going to leave all these links and a link to the transcript down in the show notes. If you enjoyed this story, it'd be great if you could share it wherever you hang out online. 
Lastly, it would mean so much if you could find time to drop us a rating on Spotify and maybe a rating and review on Apple, because let's face it, we're all just pandering to the algorithm. I'm Mathur De Leon, senior producer of Traceroute, and we'll be back in two weeks with a brand new story. Until then, thanks for listening.